There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Noise, the podcast series from PR Week. I'm Frankie Oliver, your host and founder of New Society. And today I'm joined by PR Week Editor-in-Chief, Danny Rogers. Hi, Danny. Hi, Frankie. And our special guest, Clara Bew, Head of PR, Events and Social Impact at Just Eat. And Mike Lavaggi, co-founder of talent consultancy, Braver. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. In this week's episode, we are asking whether the PR industry is doing enough to support ethnic diversity in its workforce, and specifically why those from an ethnically diverse background are still being paid substantially less, a fact that was revealed last week in the PR Week annual pay gap report conducted in partnership with people like us. So to you first, Mike, I believe that you worked closely with people like us on this year's third report. It would be great if you could give us the headline findings and your thoughts on this year's results. Okay, thanks, Frankie. Um, so I think first, the good news. About 30 agencies took part in the first iteration of the pay gap report um, in 2021, but that number fell to about 20 last year. Um, the good news is that it rose again this year to 38, which is about double um, from last year, it's the highest number of entrants so far. Um, I think one of the things I have to do is just tip my hat to both the agencies that have been committed to this long term and are holding themselves accountable, but also to the new entrants, some of whom don't necessarily have the figures that they would want to publicize. Um, but I think it's incredibly brave for those companies to be transparent anyway. And I think it shows a real commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion um, to be transparent regardless. So. Of these admittedly self-selecting agencies, we've also seen a general improvement in the overall average scores. The gender pay gap closed around 4.1% last time to around 1.1% this time around, um, with representation at senior and board levels also starting to more closely match the gender makeup of the industry. On the ethnicity side, however, there was less change. From the agencies that submitted their data, the pay gap, while tracking in the right direction, only reduced to 22.3% from 23.8%. However, a positive statistic 
overall representation at these agencies is starting to become in line with what you'd expect from the makeup of the population. Around 20% of the UK population is non-white, and across these agencies, representation sits at 20.2%. From the agencies that submitted their data, the percentage of those who are non-white British actually dropped too, um, from around 22% last year from the ones who entered it before, which on the surface seems worrying. I think, but there are a few important pieces of context to this. First of all, these are obviously incomplete figures. We know that from the last surveys by the CIPR and the Taylor Bennett Foundation, around 9 to 11% of the industry is non-white. So it's likely that most of the agencies submitting their data are probably those that are doing the best in these areas. Um, and given that we have new agencies entering, the numbers are always going to shift and be a bit different. Quite a few of the agencies who entered this year said that their numbers went down in terms of representation as bigger agencies started poaching their staff, which is both expected and an issue that we can get into later. Also, while the pay gap data highlights a worrying figure, that ethnic minority workers in the industry are on average earning three quarters of what white British workers get paid, that doesn't mean that agencies are paying staff from minority backgrounds less for doing the same job. In fact, many of the agencies commented that this wasn't the case. But because we take the mean of overall pay, it more clearly indicates the lack of representation at senior levels, which I think is the key issue. And that makes sense given that our figures show that representation drops to around 13.9% when you look at those holding senior positions. Oh, thank you so much. That was a fantastic overview, Mike. Um, so it sounds like we'll come on and definitely talk about the, the larger agency uh, issue around the lack of submissions there. But it sounds like actually the pay gap is, is less of an issue. The bigger issue is the mobility of people to move up the ranks to senior positions inside the industry. And that's really where the gap's coming from. And that's consistent with the last the reports of the last three years, I would I would assume. So what do you what is really sitting behind that would you say um i think there's a couple of reasons one i think people only really started to pay attention um properly to diversity within the industry in the last like five to ten years and i think that means you know quite logically people are moving up in um their careers so there would be less senior representation but i think from from research that we've done previously with people like us what we also see is that people who come from ethically diverse backgrounds, a lot of people seem to find a bit of a glass ceiling at some point. Um, you know, there's, there's something called affinity bias where, you know, you will get opportunities um, effectively if, you know, if you think and feel and have the same perspective as the people who are giving those opportunities, they are more likely to think an idea is good if it's the same as their own. So people get the better opportunities and a chance to progress faster if they come from um, a background that's very similar to the rest of the industry, you know, which is white British middle class university educated. But a lot of those, the people who started to progress in their careers, you know, ended up either leaving the industry or moving into freelance or consultancy positions because it's a lot harder to progress. I think in some ways it would probably feel um, frustrating to have great ideas and for them not to be listened to and to not really get the appreciation or reward for the work that you're doing the same way that someone from a different background would. So do you, is that your opinion or do you think it's fact? It's sort of an actually a baseline from which people need to operate because, you know, we've talked before about how 
there definitely is a trend for when women, for example, will have a child. And that definitely is a point at which a lot of people are lost within the industry because they're not supported properly. But are you effectively saying there's a point at which potentially people from an ethnically diverse background hit maybe associate, director level, director level inside an organization, potentially in an in-house role, and they simply aren't getting the opportunity to move forward because the person that's hiring them on the other side of the table is white? I don't think it's necessarily that they're white. I think it's that they don't have the same perspectives. Um, I think you know, I, I think there's a lot of unconscious bias and affinity bias there. And I think it's earlier than that. I think people start to hit these barriers when they get to sort of account manager level within an agency. Um, and they're surrounded by teams of people who all think the same way. And it's it's a mixture. It's There's some of it which is opinion. Um, I think most of it comes from you know, our surveys and studies within the industry that where we've had, you know, sort of qualitative and quantitative data, which shows this to be the case. Um, I think the interesting thing is 10 to 15 years ago, the percentage of people who came from a non-white background in junior positions was very similar to how it is now. Um, however, the percentages of people going into senior positions were still much, much lower. So there has to be some place where, where these people are dropping out. And, and that's from our research, it, it tends to be this. Okay, thanks for that, Mike. Now, Clara, I'd love your views on this, um, particularly seeing as you're currently client-side. Um, and I was wondering, first of all, you know, whether Mike's comments and the report's findings uh, struck a chord with you. But also, obviously, our report looks at agency diversity and diversity pay gap, and whether those same trends are, are the case in um, client-side departments. Yeah, so um, I, I saw, I found myself nodding along whilst Mike was speaking because a lot of what Mike said resonated. Um, as a black woman who's been in the PR industry for 17 years now, I've, I've seen a lot and I've been through a lot. Um, and uh, there, there are two points that really sort of stood out to me, which is the sense that um, a lot of focus has gone into recruitment and getting um, people from more ethnically diverse backgrounds into our organisations. Um, but not enough work has been done to ensure it's an inclusive environment that they're bringing these talented individuals into. And so what that means is that they're not supported and they're not catered for. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, um, you, we have to treat people specifically you know, in a specific or special way. It's actually the culture that you cultivate within your company. It's how you are leading from the front and showing that inclusion really matters to you and the steps that you take to make people feel like they belong. It's your policies. It's it's an active stance to ensure that you have a diversity of thinking, not just sort of hiring people in order to sort of hit a tick box exercise. And I think this is perhaps some of the experiences that um, other uh, PR pros from ethnically diverse backgrounds may have experienced where, you know, you're in an environment that you don't feel like you're, you can thrive or you don't feel supported. Well, what are you, what are you going to do? You're going to vote with your feet and you're going to find somewhere where you are welcomed, whether that is setting up on your own or um, an, another agency or going in-house. I mean, it, this is a key part of tackling this challenge. And I think this is where a lot of focus now needs to turn to. And Clara, um, can, have you personally experienced these environments yourself? Um, I think the, the way I'll describe this is to any women listening out there, 
I think we could all attest to the fact that the glass ceiling exists. And it's a, it's very hard to give very concrete um, examples of it, but we all know. We know and we can see it. And this is exactly what it feels like if you are from an ethically diverse background. There isn't a single thing that you can pinpoint, but um, for certain reasons, opportunities don't arise um, or others are promoted beyond you. Um, and it's it's just acknowledging that this happens. I think, you know, it's a very difficult subject and it's not something that anyone wants to sort of condone within their organization but more and more unless you actively seek to address it it will continue and what about your experience in the in-house environment do those same ceilings and biases exist there so in-house is different because of, of course you are a team within many teams and you know you are one department within a large organization so instinctively there are many more places for you to go to and many large organizations, I mean, depending on the size of your organization, um, they they want people who know the business and understand the business and their opportunities. So it can feel like perhaps you have more paths to explore um, than you would perhaps if you were agency side where there is a very detailed sort of trajectory. Yeah, I think the one thing that I always come across and whether it's within the organization and in terms of opportunities or whether it's around hiring is that people really focus on culture fit. And when your culture is really homogenous, what does that mean for someone who doesn't fit that culture? They have to basically go into a job and not be themselves and not bring them full, their full selves to work or try and mold their opinions to fitting like the rest of the people within the organization. And I, my personal belief is, you know, communications is really quite simple. It's a bridge between a brand and its audiences. Those audiences aren't homogenous. Um, you know, most brands have a very like diverse group of customers and audiences. So I think people should start looking at, you know, within brainstorms, within idea sessions, within hiring for culture ad rather than culture fit. So they can actually think about reaching more people. And Clara, I just wanted to know if that's if that resonated with you. I couldn't agree more. I honestly couldn't agree more because um, when you think that 46 percent of Londoners identify as non-white, um, and the vast majority of PR agencies are within London. It really does heighten the problem that we have. Um, you know, taking that national average of that 22% of representation, it, well, it's slightly skewed because if we are mostly based in London, the industry isn't reflecting the population. And then it, it sort of begs to question whether the work is reflecting our audiences that we're trying to connect to. Um, if up from my experience where we have had a diversity of thinking, um, but whether that be ethnicity or um, neurodivergence or any any form of sort of diversity of thinking, it has led to better work. It has, le- it has sort of highlighted blind spots. It has made us consider things that perhaps we wouldn't consider in, in the same way. We work hard and strive to have Gen Z team members to ensure we're staying in touch um, with our audiences. Um, this is how we should be thinking about reaching ethically diverse consumers or businesses, depending on what your business is you know, targeting. Can I just take you back to that um, interesting statistic that it's, say 46% of uh, Londoners, Londoners uh, define themselves as, as non-white. Yeah. Um, that is workforce presumably rather than overall population the 46 percent overall population so that is um uh government data 
Okay. I think it's also backed up by workforce. It's around the same percentage. And Mike, when you talked about, could you define what you mean by culture add? Yeah, so I think it's exactly what Clara was saying. I think having a diversity of perspectives um, in any sort of room is something that, you know, if we're talking about what communications is and talking about reaching different audiences is something that everyone should strive for. Whether it is addressing blind spots, whether it's coming up, you know, we pride ourselves on creativity. Um, and, and let's be honest, like if you want to authentically communicate to an audience, having someone who represents or has some better or different lived experience will allow you to have more ideas in the room and come up with better ideas overall. There's a McKinsey report which says that diverse workforces um, and inclusive workforces deliver, like I think it's 50% um, more impact than a non-inclusive or diverse workforce, and they're happier. Um, so I think it's it's something we should all be striving for in that sense. And I think the problem is, with the way that we hire and the way that we promote people. It, you know. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot of the time it is about culture fit. It is about how, how well would this person work with the existing team that's currently there? And they're not really taking into account the advantages that you'll have um, for your business and for your teams by adding those different perspectives. And it's not just ethnicity. Um, as Clara was saying about neurodiversity, it's also disability um, and it's also socioeconomic background. Only 12% of the industry um, identifies as working class as opposed to, I think it's 46 to 48% from what the data I've seen of the general population. So Clara, I think it's really also interesting to know whether you are specifically, you know, back to Mike's point about wanting teams who really have the right perspective on the audiences that you're trying to reach. Are you specifically looking for diversity inside your agency and consultancy teams um, when you're hiring them from a pitch and so forth? Um, absolutely. I think what I would say is that most procurement processes, especially for large organizations, um, are increasingly asking about ESG. And within that, obviously, DE&I falls um, within that being kind of a key element. Um, I think for me, it depends on the brief um, and ensuring that you have the right team for the brief and ensuring that they they are your eyes and ears and they understand the target audience that you're trying to reach. Things, a trend that I've started to see is um, kind of specialist agencies kind of increasingly kind of popping up in this space. 
um, which almost shows you the sort of the gap in the market. So, for example, the likes of Calder, who are kind of a multicultural agency and they are they are helping brands connect um, with ethnically diverse audiences. I think a broad range of diverse audiences actually don't want to minimize their work. Um, and they're set out because brands are increasingly asking for it and may not be able to get this from their current team. Um, and if you are going to do an authentic piece of work that perhaps is around Black History Month, which in and of itself is a separate subject, or if you're wanting to connect with that community, then it makes sense that you're working with people with lived experiences. Um, you are actively supporting Black-owned businesses. You are trying to find a way to effectively reach that audience in an authentic and meaningful way. And so I think unless the sort of like bigger agencies or even the sort of the agencies that we all work with day to day start to think about how they're making their teams more diverse, how they're catering for this growing need, they might get left behind as, as clients move uh, to PR shops that are able to deliver that for them. And obviously some, some brands require um, a more diverse outlook in their campaigns than others, I would guess. And I would, I would imagine that Just Eat, of course, requires um, that diversity. But I suppose if you're a, Mike, this is a question for you, really. If, if you're a financial services brand like Coots Bank um, and your audience is, is largely, you know, upper middle class white men, unfortunately, um, perhaps they would arguably require a less diverse team to run their campaigns. Unlike, say, a Nike, which is always going to be have a very diverse audience and much more general audience. How, how, what do you think? I completely disagree. I think that is an example of really short-term thinking rather than long-term thinking. Um, if, if you start thinking about the makeup of the population, um, you know, if we're saying that 20 around 20% of the um, country is, is non-white now. Um, the amount of people who are going into primary schools who are non-white is 31%. The amount of people being born who identify as a minority um, is 40%. Um, so it's quite clear that you are discounting a large proportion of the population long-term and also starting to alienate them if they don't think the brand is for them. Um, when they start to get to a position where they could potentially invest money. Um, it's not like, you know, the only people who are ever going to hold money in this country, you know, I'm, I'm saying that very optimistically, um, is, is white middle-class men um, or upper middle-class men. I think, you know, you are already seeing a massive shift in terms of the population makeup of this country and the wealth makeup of this country. And I think that if you actually want to, be a brand that you know continues to be successful long term you have to start thinking about being a brand that is for all audiences now not just focusing on um one cohort of the population that is going to alienate everyone else because that is going to be a small minority in the future to add to mike's point i think the key here is actually about talent and choice and opportunities we're having this conversation because there are talented people who aren't able to have the careers they deserve because they're facing discrimination or adversity. And if you will have your an aspiration to work in financial services, who are we to say no, because you know, you're not exactly the same as the target audience. What we're trying to create is an environment where 
talent, regardless of what background you're from, can achieve whatever you want to achieve with your career. That's the purpose of this. And I think going back to Clara's point earlier, that diversity of perspectives just generally gives you better quality of work. So I think it's it's kind of counterintuitive for people to suddenly um, only take people from one sort of background um, and not look at talent from everywhere. It doesn't sound like suddenly. It sounds like it's been happening for decades. Um, sorry, Frankie, do you want to link on? Well, no, I think your question was also an interesting one to look at in another way, which is actually, do you always need to have members of the target audience on the consultancy team? I mean, you know, I remember when I came back from maternity leave, I got very, very tired of the amount of 27-year-old guys from media agencies that were telling me that, you know, they needed a mum's campaign, they were going to talk to mum's net, you know, and really didn't understand the nuance of those particular audiences that, again, is a very misunderstood audience inside media world. So it's, it's just really interesting to think about, you know, what is the ideal makeup of a team around the audience? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's an absolute necessary requirement. I mean, the PR industry has been working quite well with a very homogenous um, uh, sort of workforce for a while, but I think it makes it harder and I think it makes your work less effective um, and less authentic. So as you said, you know, it's much harder for a 27-year-old man to think about what is going to reach um, a new mother or, or a mother of teenagers or school kids um, and, and understand those challenges without doing a lot of research, without asking people it's going to slow down their process. They're not going to instinctively know what's right and wrong. And it's going to, I think, lead to less authentic um, and less effective work. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not like you have to try and represent every single type of person within the population. I mean, most agencies are probably not the size to be able to do that anyway. So, Clara, thinking about the agencies that are performing really well in, in this year's report and obviously the agencies that you work for, what recommendations would you give to agencies who are looking at their data and thinking, actually, we really do need to make a difference? What do you think they should be looking at? I think the first thing I would do is get help. You know, you don't have to do this by yourself. It's hugely complex. Um, it's an enormous problem to solve. And the only way we're going to get you know, through it is with help from experts. Um, I'd also think about the recruitment process. I'm, no, I'm sure Mike might have lots uh, of thoughts on this, but I think for me, it's um, it's allowing yourself more time. I think we fall into traps because we're moving at such great pace. Um, you know, we've, we've got a vacancy, we want to fill it. We're trying to get the best person as possible. We're going to the same sources. Um, there are lots of organizations out there, one being, for example, Creative Access that's working extremely hard to kind of diversify the pipeline of talent coming into our industry and all creative industries. And so it's thinking about how you're set up so that when a role does become available, how can you tap into these other pools of talent in order to to kind of ensure that the shortlist and the pipeline you're getting is going to offer you more choice, um, kind of more diversity, greater representation within your business. Thank you so much, Clara. So, Mike, it would be great to get your thoughts on the agencies that are really standing out and what specifically they're doing that's making them stand out. Well, I mean, that was one of the questions in this week in this year's survey, um, and it, it was also one of the questions in last year's survey in terms of the actions that agencies were taking. Um, and I think you know one of the the key ones we saw this year. I think when you talk about sort of the social the socioeconomic demographics that people can can come from um, was cost of living. So 92% of the agencies that took part in this year's survey bolstered their staff benefits um, due to cost of living compared to only 65% in 2022. Um, we've also seen a lot more agencies start to um, 
invest in unconscious bias training um, up to nearly three quarters, 73% from 61% last year. Um, one of the things that obviously we're talking about today um, is publicly sharing of salary bands um, either within your agency or within um, the industry at large, um, which has gone up to 57.5%. Um, targets, equity targets has, has risen from 22% to 35% this year. Um, I think one of the interesting ones, especially given what Clara was talking about, is, you know, pathways is a big thing. Role models is a big element of it. One of the things that the Blueprint does, which I, I think is a fantastic program, is, is something called the Exec, which takes people from sort of these junior to mid-level positions where they're thinking about how they can progress into a leadership position, and it's giving them the skills that, so they can go back to their agencies and do that. Um, but we've actually seen a reduction this year in the amount of agencies that have done that. So it's gone down to 17.5% have, have really focused on new leadership pathways um, compared to 35% last year. Um, one of the other interesting ones, I think, because um, we talk about mentoring, one of the uh, organizations that I work with and obviously that, that helped set up this um, pay gap report is people like us. You know, you get people from ethnically diverse backgrounds who've done brilliant work and you give them three minutes to share how amazing their work is. Um, but the, one of the key parts of that is they're also paired up with a mentor. And they're paired up with a mentor that they would like to help them progress their career. And they get to choose that, and people like us goes and finds them. Um, after talking to a few agencies this year, um, and I, I won't name names, but there's, there's quite a few of them have started engaging in reverse mentoring as well, just so that they can really understand, especially at a senior position, you know, what the lived experiences are like um, for people who come from um, ethnic minority backgrounds when they first enter the industry and they when they join those teams. And from nothing last year, it's gone up to 18% this year. So you're seeing nearly one in five agencies start to put this into place. So thinking probably in our final question, thinking about listening, it feels like there's a group of agencies who are possibly not listening um, around this particular report. Um, which is really the, the, the ongoing issue of, of the really large agencies not submitting their data for this report and the sort of ongoing, um, I think, reason for that that's given is that they're not able to do that because of their typically uh, American owner that doesn't have, um, that won't allow them to do that. Mike, do you think that's a reasonable excuse? Um, no, uh, ultimately. I think, you know, we can't, really go and speak for you know the, the processes that some of these agency heads might have gone to i know that some agencies are very committed to diversity equity and inclusion um but still don't enter their data into the pay gap tables um but i think you know what we've also seen is where you know some agencies from groups that traditionally don't enter their data and um, potentially for that reason you know, other agencies within those groups don't, those agencies have started submitting their data, like um, Xeno Group, for example, have started submitting their data. I think they're the only agency from the Edelman Group that do, um, which is raises an interesting question as to why the others aren't. Well, although, to be fair, they're probably one of the few networks that actually have entered any figures, whereas Omnicom, Publicis, WPP, very little representation from their, those agencies at all, right? No, I think, so this is where we get back to the point of, you know, I think talking to a lot of agency heads who have, who are potentially nervous from the first year from some of the larger agencies, um, I think there's a lot of fear. I think there's a lot of fear about the reputational risk of entering your figures if they weren't good. And I think there was a lot of fear 
from the wider groups that if they started being transparent about this data in the UK, that would put pressure from their employees and from other um, clients for them to start doing that internationally. Clara, do you think, you know, when you look at that table, do you think it reputationally affects those agencies who are not in that, that they stand out for you as a client? I think it does. And I think what I would say to other clients in a similar position to myself is to is to kind of, it, you need to sort of, not pressurise, but you need to ask your agencies why this is. You need to be curious about it. Um, as Mike said, there is there are a lot of people who are really committed to this, but are are being held back for various red tape reasons. I think the key thing here is that as an industry, we need a way to measure this. And this is what's on the table right now. And in order for it to flourish, we all need to get behind it and we all need to provide our data and we all need to start working towards improving the circumstances and the situations. And so, yes, as a client, I am looking around and I'm thinking, well, what are you doing? And what proof points can you point me to? And, you know, what steps have you taken? Yes, you may not be in the right position right now to complete um, the report, but you still need to have evidence of what you're doing and evidence that you're taking steps in the right direction. Fantastic. Well, there's no better call to action than that, is there, than uh, for agencies to submit next year. So thank you so much to you both, Clara and Mike, for joining us. Um, it's been a fantastic show. And um, really, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to you joining us next time. 